Today's program was brought to you by Roth Cheese, a pioneer in the U.S. specialty cheese movement. For more information, visit RothCheese.com. Hey, 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 welcome to Beer Sessions Radio on Heritage Radio Network. It's Tuesday, January 11th, 2022. I can't believe it's 2022. And people are talking about dry January, dry cider January. So we're going to be talking about cider uh, on the show today. So we're going to go around the room and introduce all the guests. I'm Jimmy Carboni. I'm the host here on Beer Sessions Radio. Bridget. Hi, Jimmy. I'm Bridget O'Keefe, the Executive Director of the Cider Institute of North America. Wow, this is going to be really exciting. We're going to learn about some really cool things in the world of hard cider. Christine? Hi there, Jimmy. Thanks for having us. Christine Walter. I'm with Bauman Cider. I'm the head cider maker and owner, and we're in Jervis, Oregon. Oh, it's amazing. We're on the East Coast, and, and you're out in Oregon. I love that. And Ryan? Hey, Jimmy. Uh, Ryan Burke here with Angry Orchard um, and also proud board member of the Cider Institute of North America. Wow, it's, it's so great to get to talk to you and looking forward to learning more about the Cider Institute of North America. And Kira out in Montana. Uh, hey, Jimmy, this is Kira Bassingthwaite. Uh, I'm the head cider maker for Western Cider, and we're based in Missoula, Montana. All right. So my good buddy, Ron, Ron Sansone of Spoken Spy Cider, giving him a big shout out in, uh, in Connecticut, um, has been telling me about Cena, the Cider Institute of North America, for, for a little while. And it's really been great to get this show together. Uh, so thank you, Ron, for uh, inviting me and, and introducing me to everybody. Um, Richard, why don't you give us a little backstory on what Cena is? Uh, because this is not just another uh, organization to hype consumer interests and create marketing, like a lot of uh, beverage associations do. Sure, the Cider Institute of North America is a nonprofit organization we have the very specific and, and targeted mission of um, increasing cider production quality through education um, and training services for the industry. So we work in collaboration between the cider industry and academic partners to deliver a suite of educational resources and coursework um, specific to cider and peri production. Wow. And there's a lot of history there. I'm looking forward to learn more about it. Um, we'll go around the room. So, uh, Ryan, um, I know you for a long time at Angry Orchard Walden, Angry Orchard Innovation, uh, one of the top cider makers in New York. Um, tell us about Cena. You're a founding board member. Why do you need Cena? What does it do? And, and how are you involved in it? Sure. Yeah. I mean, Cena, Cena came out of continuing the work of um, you know, someone I consider a legend in the cider industry, Peter Mitchell. Um, Peter's from the UK. He has a lifetime in cider um, and has been uh, bringing over his science-based approach to cider making to the U.S. for years. Before that, he'd been teaching it over in the UK, which he's continued to do. Um, and so we got together. Man, it's hard to remember the years these days, to be totally honest, um, three, four years ago, um, and uh, decided that, you know, it was time to, to take the work that Peter's done and, and um, 
elevate it here in the U.S., um, expand the opportunity um, for cider makers to have access to the classes um, and to bring, you know, a uniquely American um, viewpoint to the work that had been done. So really before Peter started bringing um, his work over here or access to his classes over here, there really wasn't um, a science-based approach um, for cider making available um, in the U.S. And so he's really spearheaded that. Um, and for me as a cider maker, um, I, I've found it to be invaluable over the years. Um, you know, I, I don't think it's 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 really it's an open book and it's an opportunity to learn and so there's there's so much to be known um, and by no means is it the Bible but it is um, it is a a place to start when you take the level one Cena class um, and it it really gives cider makers access to um, such a well of information and they can take that information and use it as they see fit some things may or may not fit. Um, some things might be more directed at a larger cider company versus a smaller cider company. Um, it's a really nice overview of what you can do with very little and what you can do as you grow, um, how to manage uh, quality throughout. And I think that's the key to what, what Sina is about, um, is bringing um, a perspective of let's elevate cider um, you know, based on making a fantastic beverage and Sina gives you the tools to do that. So, you know, every cider maker that um, has worked for me over the years has gone through the classes. I, of course, have gone through the classes. Um, I continue to be um, active on the board with the team that's on the call here. Um, and, you know, I just try to bring my perspective to to what we um, what we're trying to push forward. And I um, you know, with where with my position in Angry Orchard, I, you know, I'm, I'm lucky to get the opportunity to see the world of cider, um, you know, all around the world. It's been a really amazing ride, um, and so I, I try to bring um, and share that with with the team, so we can we can create um, classes that are meaningful um, to the cider industry. When, when did you meet Peter Mitchell? I mean, I know Peter Mitchell who's a headwater cider in Massachusetts. Yeah. Yeah. Different, <laughs> different Peter Mitchell altogether, although that's a great Peter Mitchell too. Um, geez, you know, this is my, I think this is my 11th cider season um, professional. Um, I've probably met Peter seven seasons ago or so um, when I when I initially took, took a class. Um, and then, you know, I'd be, before Angry Orchard, I was at, at Virtue Cider for many years, a founding cider maker there. Um, and so sometime in, in that space, um, I, I connected with Peter. And then, um, you know, when I left and I came on to Angry Orchard, uh, we started the Cena discussion. Yeah. Hey, let, let's go to Kira. So Kira, uh, you, you've been a student of some of the Cena classes. Yeah. Um, why is professional cider education important to you? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I, I came from a food background. I went to culinary school and then was in the uh, whiskey world for a number of years and kind of got thrown into the to the cider world then. And I found myself with, you know, a good foundation of, um, you know, flavor profiles and a curiosity for the subject, of course. But uh, having that foundation, you know, of what is happening when cider is fermenting 
the, you know, the equipment in a cidery is very different from that of a distillery. Uh, and it was all sort of a blank slate for me. And I had a lot of, a lot of learning to do right off the bat. Uh, and so as soon as I could get into uh, that foundation course, um, I did, and it was about, you know, one month before I started full-time as the head cider maker for Western, Western cider. Um, and it was just, it was a perfect introduction into what I needed to start looking at. I had a lot to learn at that point. Uh, and just having that starting point was incredibly helpful, uh, for me for that foundation course. And then I took a, a few more as the years have gone on. Wow. And you, Western cider that's in, uh, we're in Missoula. Yeah. Missoula, Montana. And um, Christine, let's talk about your story of taking the class and how it shaped your career. Sure. Uh, so in 2015, I was just kind of dabbling in home cider making. And I, having grown up on a farm, we grew apples. We've always pressed apple juice. And um, it's part of my fall tradition, like since I was a small kid. And so I'd kind of been thinking you know, seeing apple cider, hard cider out in the market and thinking, gosh, uh, why, why aren't we doing that with our apples? It didn't make any sense. And so I, you know, started to poke into it with curiosity and I talked to some cider makers and every cider maker I talked to said, you've got to take what was then called the Peter Mitchell class that, that now of course has, <laughs> has evolved. And everybody said, you got to take the Peter Mitchell class. And I, um, uh, I did it. I just, I just plunged right in and it was December of 2015. And I went up to, um, it, he was offering it in Montana or excuse me, in Washington, Northern Washington. And I went up for a week and I took the full thing and the sensory evaluation and, um, the science class. And I just fell in love. I loved every bit of it. My background is in, um, biochemistry. That's what my degree is in. And, and never had I imagined that biochemistry would be so much fun as uh, as it is in cider making. And so, so that was it. I took it in 2015. I started my company and started selling cider in 2016 and um, right on the farm and we right where we grow the apples. So you, you have a great identity. It, it looks like you, you've been there forever uh, <laughs> making cider. <laughs> yeah, you know, I didn't know. Um, my family was like, oh, that's a fad. If nobody's going to drink cider, that's just a thing, you know, like Zima. And, um, and so it took some real work. And, and one day my dad said, hey, you know what? I bet, um, I bet the barrels are still in the barn from when great grandpa Stephen used to make cider. And I was like, what? How, how was this not? part of our family's story why didn't I know that and it just it was crazy how you know growing up I never knew and and had had somebody continued that then it would have been part of my story from the beginning we you know my my great-great-grandmother homesteaded the farm in uh in Oregon in 1895 with their two sons and they planted the orchard then and um we've been growing apples there ever since I'm now the fifth generation growing growing there and um gosh it, it's really it's beautiful to be back i wasn't i haven't always been on the farm and now i'm back and it feels great wow and it, was there an era what, what was going on on the farm when you were a kid was it 
you yeah. pick apples or what was going on? So yes, we had, we had apple. I mean, it's a big farm and a big family. So we have a lot of things going on. We have orchards, apples and nuts and plums and pears. And, um, and then we have lots of vegetable crops and seed crops. My grandpa actually fell in love with kiwis on a visit to Australia uh, or New Zealand back in, oh my gosh, it would have been the seventies and planted one of the first commercial kiwi groves in the U.S. And so we have a big, a big, um, an acre of kiwi and uh, tons of cane berries and strawberries, and blueberries. So I want to say we have like close to 30 varieties of cane berries. And then we have a fresh fruit market, like a farm stand. Um, and farm stand sounds super quaint, but it's actually pretty big. Like we employ a hundred people there much of the year. And um and we sell all the fruits and vegetables that we can grow right there on the farm. Right. And then uh, what was it about Cena that, that just kind of clicked for you? Yeah. Um, so I'm a giant nerd. And, and so, you know, taking that class just felt like home to me. You know, the, the science piece of making cider is it's so it makes perfect sense. And so when I got to know Cena and in its continuing iteration, you know, following up on Peter Mitchell's work and taking that to a whole new level now in the US. Um, it's just intrigued me very much. And I love, I love learning and I love teaching. And so the opportunity to be on the board has been uh, really cool for me. And I love thinking that we're shaping the kind of the experience of both cider makers and cider drinkers and doing a little more outreach. Like there's a lot of growth to be had in the industry in terms of education of the drinkers of cider. And that's a huge opportunity for us uh, as a board to kind of tap into that piece of it. No, that, that's a huge one. And we're going to get to that. I'm going to go back to Ryan because I, I know he's, he has to leave sooner than the others. R Ryan, you know, I've, I've probably known you since, since you, started at Angry Orchard. I know you worked at uh, Virtue Cider. What, what were the holes in, in your cider maker education, um, you know, back then that you feel that, that Cena uh, can, can fill in for, for cider makers now? Sure, yeah, I think um, others touched on this. You know, cider for a long time has been kind of lumped in with everything else. Um, it continues, that continues to happen. Um, you know, it's, it's its own thing. Um, it has its own challenges. It, it has its own, um, opportunities. And, and by that, I mean, you know, yeast, yeast, for instance, acts a certain way in cider. It may not act that way in say wine and certainly not in beer. Um, and so a lot of the, the available material kind of before all this, um, was rooted in these other industries. And as we've grown as an industry, um, not just in the U S but, but globally, um, that is demand for, um, well, there's a demand for quality cider and that, that necessitates quality cider makers. Um, and so for me, you know, I got into this industry, um, you know, without really any formal education, um, that could be attributed to cider making. Um, I, I had gone to Siebel Institute, but that was all about brewing and that's because um, that's what was available to me. So I, I took um, the, the um, brewing education class at Siebel. I was living in Chicago at the time. Um, there, there wasn't anything else to do. Um, and so, 
I, I think, you know, I, I brought my own, um, you know, back, back in the earlier days of virtue, I brought my own um, interpretation of uh, what cider was. I took bits and pieces of information I got from Siebel or, you know, from a yeast rep. Um, you know, what I might have read in some, you know, in an Andrew Lee book from the UK, which is a great book, by the way, but certainly, you know, geared to really small um, home fermentation, uh, although still very useful. Um, Ryan, what, what's the name of, of the author? Um, Andrew Lee, UK uh, scientist, um, author. The name of the book, uh, it's probably just Cider Making. I don't remember off the top of my head, but it's Andrew Lee, L-E-A. Um, the L-E-A, L-E-E, I can't remember. Anyway, Andrew Lee's Cider, Cider book, it's, it's ubiquitous, it's out there, um, a great a great resource. Um, and so there just really wasn't a lot to like build, say, a quality program around um, cider production. Um, there really wasn't, um, you know, outside of the Peter Mitchell course. So it did exist, it was there, you just had to get to it. Um, you had to find it. it. It wasn't being offered in Michigan at that time. It didn't go, go to New York to do it. Um, and so I think it, it, um, I think ultimately what it's all about is giving confidence to cider makers and making um, the information available to them, uh, showing people what they can do with it. And then it's up to them to take it to where they want to go. Um, and, and that's really important to me um, as a cider maker. The more I know, the more risks I can take. That's the way I always think about um what we do with Cena um, for my own use, for my own cider making. It's like, okay, the more I know about how I might screw this up, um, the more I can like make it my own, the more I can make it my own style, the more I can like define my cider making. And so um, I think that that's what's really important is to, is to fill in these basics um, because you may be, you know, an upstart cider maker, one person, um, and, you, and, and you still may want to, and probably should still want to, you know, understand the science of, of quality. Um, and so, you know, this at a, at a, at a really reasonable rate um, and, um, and, and an opportunity to meet people in the cider industry, right? Where this place where you can make cider anywhere in the country now, you can get apple juice brought to you or however you choose to make cider. There's, there's cider being made everywhere, right? So um, just the opportunity to gather, to get, to, to get together and to meet people in the industry um, and begin, be, be, begin to build relationships and um, be, become a part of a community of people that are trying to push things forward. Um, you know, I think that's the big open space that we can fill with, with Cena. Yeah. So earlier I was talking to Ron Sansone, who's my buddy. I, I was just thinking just how much, to me, the cider world is still very small, but it's also very authentic. And um, I don't know if anybody wants to, to say just, what what this what being in this the hard cider world means because I'm in hospitality food beverage, you know half half the the media is talking about you know hard seltzers and canned cocktails and we know the marketing budget that spirits and liquor companies have but there there's something like authentic and real about about cider across you know all the different categories. Um, I, where do you fit into that now, Ryan? Because I, I I know you're able to make like some of the best ciders in New York and, and you've got a lot of resources. Yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, what I love about cider is that it can be so many different things and it, and it really is. Um, it can be, um, you know, it can be from sweet to dry, you know, from apple based to 
apples plus basically anything um and so on and so forth it 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 has attempted to have rules in the past as to like what it is or try to define it by categories it that seems to be kind of hard to contain it um which is great i think that's part of the fun and excitement and you you know you have you also have historical styles of cider making from all you know all around the world that people are trying to replicate in fact have entire businesses based on some old world styles um which i which i think is really interesting and fun and so um i think for me to connect authentically as you say um is about place and so what drives my interest um you know are are apples and where they come from um how they're grown um and how that ultimately shows up in what I do. Um, and the more I know, the more I could pivot around in that statement, um, you know, because we certainly make, you know, cider on, a, on, a, on the larger scale in the U.S. and then we make it also on the smallest scale in the U.S. and everything in between. Um, but at all times um, and no matter what, where that fruit is coming from, who's growing it, um, what it looks like on a given year. Um, that's what's interesting and keeps me coming back year on year to cider is, um, you know, how can I manipulate that either to hit targets um, that that satisfy a drinker need of having something that's the same every time they open it um, or not um, and doing something, you know, totally native, wild, def defined only by the season um, with minimal to no intervention in the fermentation. Um, and so, you know, once again, the, the more I know, uh, the more I can, you know, navigate that and, and create something that, you know, I put forward, you know, that I put my name on and I put my company's name on, um, that I can stand behind and I'm proud of. Yeah. And just let, let, one more thing with Ryan. So like for me, the, on the East coast, when I think about cider, you know, think about the traditions, you think of, you know, Spain and Astorias and parts of France and, and, and England, um, but where do you see where like American cider is going? Because oh, I feel that it's a, it's its own thing. It, well, yes. A question I wish I had the answer to. Um, I think, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of people trying to answer that question. I don't think we're going to get there for a while, which is another thing that kind of, you know, brings me back and, and, um, and keeps me interested, um, you know, the last time I talked to you, Jimmy, we were on a call with uh, Dan Pucci and Craig Cavallo with their, their book, American Cider. Um, if listeners want to get a get a, a at least a, a, a deep understanding of where cider is today and where it's been a bit in the U.S. and, and, and where it's going, it's a, it's a great book, American Cider. Um, I think that um, I used to think that it was going to be all about traditional bittersweet high tannic cider apples and that that was the that was the way um and i still believe in those apples and i use them and and the orchard at, at angry orchards orchard is um full of that fruit we use it across all of our brands um it's still really meaningful but it seems to not really be the story that people are getting excited about um i guess speaking as a new york cider maker um i think it's about the varieties that grow really well here and finding a way to present them um as 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 dan pucci talks about quite a bit um author of american cider is, is texture um and, and building ciders that have 
texture in them. And so they're not, that's not necessarily texture coming from tannin um, um, from bittersweet fruit. It's, it's texture coming from leaves contact or, um, or, you know, ferment general fermentation technique, or maybe some barrel aging or oxidation. Um, I think in there, there's something interesting and unique um, because, it, you know, if we're sort of scrambled down this um, European cider varieties, which are, again, I don't want to disparage them. I love them to death um, and I'll always use them. Um, but I, I don't know that that defines the making style um, that's that 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 the, the potential making style of the U.S. It's so heavily reliant on the style of, you know, the, as the places you mentioned, the U.K., Spain. France um, and, and and other places, although mainly those places. Um, so I, I think um, I think we can be defined and will continue to be defined, as I mentioned earlier, as this as this pretty colorful palette of kind of anything goes. I think that's where we're going to be for quite a while, at least in the called the general market of cider, the the national or you know semi-national market, the, the bigger cider makers, the million plus gallon cider makers. Um, but then I think, you know, certainly in New York, um, and Christine would be better to talk about what's going on out West. Um, but certainly in New York, the, um, the smaller cider makers are trying to drive a conversation about uh, place, about terroir, um, and about the apples that grow really well here and how to express them. And often those apple varieties are not, um, those classic European varieties. They're, uh, classic American varieties like the Northern Spy, the Newtown Pippin, the Baldwin apple, um, et cetera, et cetera. Great. Thanks so much, Ryan. Hey, yeah. uh, Christine. So um, tell us more about your Macintosh cider. I know it just won a gold medal. And um, I want you to talk about your orcharding practices yes. and how it impacts your cider. Sure. So um, let's see. First of all, the Macintosh cider specifically, we, um, the last few years, we've gotten apples from just outside of Missoula, Montana. And um, we did that because I, I tasted some ciders out of Montana made with Macintosh apples and I just fell in love. Like I'd never tasted anything like it. It just has such a, an aromatic quality that's like floral and caramel and honey and just incredible, um, like nectar of the gods. And so I was talking with, uh, there's a there's a fellow Ryle who goes around, he presses for like, does a huge circuit and presses, like has a big truck and he'll just pull right up to your farm and press a bunch of apples one day. And um, it's really a, a valuable service that he does. And so one day I said to him and he's out of Montana and I said, could I get some of those Macintosh apples? or juice and uh and he made it happen and god it was just a treat and so now i've done a few of these a few of these fermentations with it and i just love it and last year i planted um ryle had grafted over some cyan wood from from the orchards there in montana where i'd been getting the macintosh uh the last few years grafted it onto rootstock that I could plant. And so I planted three acres of Macintosh trees last year on the farm. And I can't wait to see, I mean, that talk about a terroir project to see whether those apples taste anywhere near, you know, their, their parentage that is growing in the Bitterroot Valley, Montana, which is much different conditions and soil and, you know, weather and all of those things. And uh, so 
like there's that piece of it you know here we are in the Willamette Valley we've got pretty rich soils and um, you don't necessarily need the richest of soils to grow good apples I mean it's similar to grapes and it's why um, grapes do a you know the same kind of thing in that like the more difficult they have to work the better they are in wine and sometimes you find that with apples so um, there's that the the thing that I love about being an orchard based cider maker is that we get to see you know like in, as a farmer some years are rough some years a hailstorm just before harvest or um, you know hot and dry and it feels like you're never going to get any water and and then you see how that translates and it's not always it's not always a bad thing gives you bad apples like sometimes it's the worst weather like a little hailstorm just before picking and or or at the right time in um in fruit set and you're going to end up with a lot of um scarring or like russeting on the apples and that just gives you more sugar and more flavor and more texture like ryan mentioned the texture is so important in american ciders and you, you said you studied biochemistry. Yeah. How does that come into play when you're making cider? I mean, do you get involved with soils? You know, there's, there is a lot of microbiology and chemistry in cider making. You know, like, like what makes one cider different from another? Like if we're all starting with the same juice, say, then um, it's, it's your acid levels. It's your temperature and all of those things. It's like a it's like a science experiment every time. And if you, you know, hold, hold the juice constant, but then add this or control control for this variable, then, then it's just a, it's a lab experiment and it's beautiful, you know, like uh, that's one of the things like how Ryan mentioned earlier, you, you learn and the learning allows you to know how you can play with those rules. And that's what I've always thought. Like, I like to know all the rules so that I can choose which ones to break. And, and so in science, you know, you're like, you know that if you're, if you go into a fermentation with, um, you know, 3.4 pH, you're gonna get some great ester development because it's so acidic and, you know, all these things going for it. But what happens if you get some French apples and it's 4.0 pH like that? That's kind of reckless and dangerous in the in the world of like safe cider making. But like knowing that you can hold everything else constant, you know, good hygiene and and um, you know a strong yeast strain or just you know managing your variables, then you know how you know what that gives you, and it's like sublime fruity caramely notes and it's amazing do you test your apples be before you start fermenting them yes we do so i've got a refractometer that i take out in the field just to test sugars because um you know more sugars are better and so the longer we can wait um before they drop and get those sugars developing then the better it for the most part. And um, so we test that. I'll, I'll take some pH strips out sometime. We'll do an iodine test in the field sometimes to see if there, if we have full starch conversion in the apples, just because it's better on our press. We get better, um, better yield in the juice if, um, if all the starches are converted. Um, there are a few other little tests we do, but that's the bulk of it, you know, acids and uh, pH and then, um, sugars you know so you're you're out west yeah. on a separate question um your bottles um 
it it looks like there's there's different types of cans and bottles and styles of presentation. How did you set on the bottles that, that you sell your product in? Well, that's a funny question right now, Jimmy, because we well, gotta um, look at your Instagram. That's what I did <laughs> oh, today. <laughs> well, um, so we kind of set out with this aesthetic of like a you know very old timey farm you know, like, like you would have found a hundred years ago, that kind of look. And, um, and we, there's a picture of my great grandpa on all the bottles that, uh, is him and his Sunday overalls going to a picnic down on the pudding river. And, um, I just, I just love, I love that aesthetic. I love that old timey kind of look about it. And, um, uh, with regard to the bottles, like we found this bottle that we loved and then, a year and a half ago, we've been unable to get them because of supply chain issues of late. And now we are desperately taking any bottle we can find and filling it with cider just because it's so hard to find bottles right now. And today we had a big bottling run planned and, and um, we had this substitute bottle that was supposed to fit the bottling line and it didn't. And so we are just scrambling when I left the farm today to come home and do this I I was like oh I can't even deal with it anymore we're gonna we're gonna come out of today bottling with like five different bottle shapes and it's just like well it's just a sign of the time so much for an authentic aesthetic to our brand but <laughs> yeah the, and there'll, there'll be critics criticizing how one bottle pours and the other one doesn't yeah. pour so well <laughs> hey well, we're gonna take a short break we're back in a few minutes here on beer sessions radio all right Today's program was brought to you by Roth Cheese, a pioneer in the U.S. specialty cheese movement. Roth has made specialty cheese in the rolling hills of Wisconsin for more than 30 years. With strong Swiss heritage, Roth is best known for its award-winning Alpine-style Grand Cru cheeses. Fresh Wisconsin milk, combined with expertise in affinage, is how Roth creates high-quality, great-tasting cheese year after year. In 2016, hard work paid off when out of over 2,000 contenders, Roth Grand Cru Sir Schwab was named world champion at the World Cheese Championship. For more information, visit rothcheese.com. Hey, hey, welcome back to Beer Sessions Radio on Heritage Radio Network. Support us and become a member at Heritage Radio Network. Org. So, Kira, out in Missoula, Montana, um, say who you are again, because I'm, I'm sorry we, we, we missed you because Ryan was going to Oh, leave. no problem. Where, where are you working? Um, I'm working at Western Cider in Missoula, Montana. Wow. So we were talking earlier about, about the program at the Cider Institute, Sina. What are your goals as you grow in the industry? And then also, how does this compare with your past experiences in distilling? So you, you've got quite a story. Yeah. Um, well, I would say with my experience with Cena, just kind of, as I mentioned, it's coming from a background of, you know, the food and beverage world, but that's such a big, there's such a big spectrum there. Um, coming into cider, I really, I didn't have the foundation um, that I do now. And Cena is definitely a, a big part of that. And I'm thankful for them. Um, I imagine a lot of cider makers in the past years, you know, everybody has to go through that sort of troubleshooting and, you know, actually hands-on experience. Um, nothing, no schooling could prepare you for every single example, every single problem or situation you might run into. 
Um, but having that foundation does give you a better, a better way to assess what's going on. You know, you have a, yeah, just a better idea. And, um, I found that to be pretty critical, especially in being in a management position and having to tell people what to do as well, <laughs> wanting to be, uh, credible in, in my knowledge and everything. And, um, now that I'm about four and a half years in, I, I have a little bit more experience to, to be able to speak on that. But, um, as Ryan mentioned, the, the course really does touch on a little bit of everything and you can, you can take what you want from it and apply it to your, your situation. So, you know, at Western, we have quite a mix of, you know, we're bottling in 750 milliliter bottles from apples on our orchard. We have, you know, a 500 milliliter bottle that is sort of, uh, you know, we're using other fruits and we're barrel aging that we're also canning. So, you know, the properties of cider going into can versus into glass is, is very different in how you have to handle it. Um, and lots of different equipment, filtration techniques, everything. So, uh, Tina does such a nice job of, of giving you the groundwork to, to start building on. Um, and in contrast to my experience in the distilling world, uh, I didn't have much training, um, at that, at that place. Um, it was, it was very much, this is, you know, what you're looking for. These are the parameters, but there wasn't a lot of, this is why this is happening. Look for this. This will lead, lead you to these conclusions. This is how we're going to get these flavors or, uh, there was less excitement or passion around understanding the hows and the whys. Um, and I really resonate with, as everybody here has been talking about kind of understanding as much as possible so that you can, um, make good decisions and, and the decisions that you want. Um, and when things don't turn out a particular way that you expected, being able to reference your, your record keeping in your notes to then say, well, why might that have been the case? Uh, and so as far as distilling, uh, I was on the distilling side of it. I wasn't on the fermentation um, side of that production. And so it was a brand new territory getting into fermentation in and of itself and, and seeing just how cider falls in this funny mix between beer and wine, where it's a fruit ferment and, and there's a lot of similarities. And as Ryan mentioned, a lot of resources come from the wine world. Uh, but then our, our customers and the people enjoying cider more and more are oftentimes coming at it from a beer perspective. It's in a can, it's, it's carbonated, uh, and they're used to seeing it like that, but it's obviously not based from grain and, um, there's so many, so many differences. So, uh, yeah, I think that my, my feeling on my distilling experience was that since being in cider, I realized just how little I knew about distilling. I knew how to make sure I was not getting the bad alcohols <laughs> into the final product. And, uh, um, but I wasn't sure about all the compounds involved and, and flavor development and maturation in the barrels and these sorts of things. So I feel, uh, like my experience in the cider world is much more conducive to a thorough uh, a thorough experience and understanding of the product. So I'm thankful for that. Kira, when you came to the, the cider world first, um, let's talk about yeast. And I know yeah. Ryan mentioned yeast. Uh, is there an example of a yeast that is so different for wine or beer that, and that yet works for cider or, I don't know, yeast is so complicated. It is really complicated. Yeah. I mean, we, we do a, you know, combination of, uh, fermentations that are, 
with commercial yeast and we we lean towards the the wine yeast in that department and we kind of fall in that category although i know a lot of um yeast providers and and labs are doing a lot of research as far as how yeast you know thrive in different environments and really separating cider from wine i think there's a lot of effort going in that direction to to try to say hey cider really is a different product than wine even though it's a fruit ferment we're dealing with totally different composition of <clears throat> a composition of um proteins and sugars and and acids you know we're dealing with malic acid uh and i think that that all of that contributes to what you're going to get out of out of a yeast you know certain a lot of the yeast strains in the wine world can handle alcohol contents up to 16 and 17 percent alcohol but that that isn't really the range that cider is in and alcohol content will have a huge impact on your overall perception of a cider and and mouthfeel as well as aromatics and um yeah i think that there's there's just more energy heading towards separating cider out as its own product which is is great so i think we will start to see more information as far as what yeasts work really well we we work with a number of wine yeasts that i think are phenomenal for for making cider and we've definitely found our favorites but yeast has such a you can tell you can drink a cider and you know tell what yeast was used you know for the ciders that we make i i know um i can taste that the yeast is such a huge component of the final product um and so i think it's 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 good to to mix it up and use different yeast so you have that variety uh in your product wow kira um so you came from distilling uh, to western cider um can you talk about the company culture and valuing the training. Um, yeah. And did you get some kind of funding to pay for this, the senior course? We, we did. Um, yeah. So we, Western Cider, I feel so fortunate to be with these guys and um, they've been a huge support and, um, you know, kind of letting me grow and uh, grow into my position there. Uh, and I, I definitely voiced that I wanted some uh, professional training because I I felt I needed that to to be able to make good decisions um, and yeah they were supportive of that and Montana Department of Labor and Department of Agriculture has a lot of, of funding associated with those departments and so we were able to get um, I'm trying to remember the exact name I think it was the the incumbent worker training program which was a part of the Department of Labor we had a grant through them. And uh, they were able to use that to send me to a few different of the few different of the Cena classes, as well as um, a few other employees at Western were able to go to New York for a sensory analysis training as well. So we sent our front of house manager and our sales manager um, and then two, two of the owners um, out to, to do that training. Montana sounds like a special place. I know that um, Montana State University has a, a, a national uh, like a, a barley uh, study program yeah. for, for malt. Um, yeah, they do. I didn't think about Montana and this kind of value added agriculture. Yeah. As far as apples or as, as far as the, the grain apples, malt, everything. Yeah. I, I didn't. Yeah, we are definitely a grain state, uh, by volume. Eastern Montana grows an incredible amount of, of wheat and barley and, and the distillery I worked at actually had, we had our own farm and we were growing our rye and wheat um we were sourcing barley from montana but um 
Malt Europe has a headquarters in um, Great Falls, Montana. So a lot of grain is malted there. So uh, we have a ton of breweries and distilleries are popping up left and right as well. Um, but we do have a couple areas in Montana that are sort of these microclimates for apples and, and other fruit. Um, the Bitterroot Valley, as well as the Flathead Valley, um, is Flathead Valley is known for just incredible cherries. The Flathead cherry is is famous around here and gets shipped all over the world. And uh, as Christine was mentioning, the Macintosh apples, um, we use probably some some of the same juice that she used for her Macintosh cider as well. Uh, just I think in 2019, we had Macintosh from six different orchards, and I did. Um, single varietal orchard specific Macintosh. Um, we kind of, we did six different Macintosh ciders. Everything about them were this, was the same other than the Macintosh apples coming from each individual orchard. And the, the, just the spectrum of that cider was unbelievable um, just to taste that. And these orchards aren't even that far away from each other. So talking about terroir and, and uh, yeah, speaking to a place, um, I think Montana's dry climate, but just sort of our weather patterns. We have really long uh, summer days. Our will be light until after ten o'clock at night in June, and uh, and in the winter, therefore, we have very dark days. But those hot, long summer days allow for really amazing um, sugar content, and uh, yeah, we just we can grow really good apples. It's kind of a surprising thing to think about, but wow. Hey, um, back to the science. So. Um, I know that the American Cider Association likes to call this dry cider January. I like that too. Um, what is dry cider? Like, I mean, do you measure it and the you know residual sugar? Um, and is that a style that that you're making? Yeah, yeah. So dry dry cider would be um, you know low to zero uh, residual sugar in your final product, and um, it's it's definitely a style that's out there and, and trending for certain, you know, certain drinkers. Um, it is tough, I think with cider to have a balanced cider that is completely dry. Uh, it depends on the apples that were used for that cider. But when you think about the acidity level, sometimes ciders are just kind of screaming for a little bit of sweetness, um, to, to have that be a balanced profile. Um, but there's, there's just, everybody has a different preference. So I think that there is a, there's definitely a clientele and, and lots of people that want, you know, something that is low sugar, uh, that they can enjoy. Um, and so we do a lot of drier ciders. I would, I would say almost all of our ciders are in the semi dry or dry category, um, of residual sugar. We do a, a couple semi sweets and then we've done an ice cider and things like that, that would certainly fall into, the sweet category, but, uh, yeah, the, the drier ciders tend to be, you know, more crisp. They're really good for, um, like the more tannic, bittersweet, bitter sharp apples that we'll use, um, from our orchard, uh, after many months of maturing, um, you, you don't need a lot of residual sugar to kind of have a well-rounded cider because of all the tannins and acids that kind of mellow out over time. Um, we'll get a well-balanced cider um, just from that, and it'll still be considered a you know a semi-dry or a dry cider. Yeah, Kira, how do you go about la labeling 
your ciders for for dryness because I've got a from Massachusetts. I have an artifact cider. It's got it says sweetness two pluses, um, acidity four pluses, structure one plus. It's a artifact wild thing. Um, do you have any any guide to the dryness or or anything else or just word descriptions uh, on your label yeah. or your marketing? You know, we don't do too much of that. I know some some places will, you know, they'll have either like a diagram or something that kind of helps, you know, pinpoint some of these uh, major flavor profiles for for the drinker. And um, we don't we don't have a diagram. Sometimes we will, you know, indicate, you know, if it's a if it is a sweeter cider, um, we will, you know, talk about that in a in a description. Um, but we we don't always we don't necessarily label it as this is a semi dry. I think for the most part, we're going for a bat, you know, balance across the board and, um, you know, certain ciders, like we do a whiskey peach. So it's a peach and apple co-ferment, and then we barrel age it, uh, and we then back sweeten with more peach and it's naturally going to have more sweetness and people see the title and they almost, they almost know it's going to be on the sweeter side, not a sweet cider, but, um, just with that sort of fruit forward notes, um, it's it's kind of what people would expect. So as far as our labeling, um, we don't we kind of say we go for balance more than um, necessarily identifying it on our label as a sweet or a semi-sweet, semi-dry. Yeah. Well, this is a little preview of what Cena is and all the conversations we, we can have. Um, let's go back, Christine, for one last question. Um, What's your vision of Cena as a board member? So you're a board member now, and uh, what you see as the future of the cider industry, in particular in cider education, because I feel like we're just getting started. Yeah, that's great questions, Jimmy. Um, uh, we are just getting started. We are. We've got a lot of ground to take back. Like back in the uh, 1700s, cider made up like close to. 50 or 60% of the alcohol consumed was cider. And, um, and of course now it's, I want to say closer to 5%, three to 5% last time I looked at data. And, um, so we've got some, we've got some work to do in educating drinkers. And so a multi-pronged approach with the, the big emphasis being to make cider makers that know how to make great ciders. And then that makes it a lot easier for us to educate the public on why to drink cider and what makes cider so great. So um, uh, as a board member and kind of the discussions we have around curriculum, um, certainly we'll continue to teach the foundation class and, and to make sure that all new cider makers entering the market, whether they've whether they've come or entering the industry, whether they've come from a different beverage industry, they were a brewer, they were a winemaker, and they want to, you know, take this leap and, and, or whether they're just, you know, young kids out of school, not young kids, you know, like over 21, but um, <laughs> <laughs> like younger and wanting to start a career in the industry, like giving them the foundation to make safe, wonderful cider um, is great. But how do we reach, how do we reach people that um, maybe are curious, you know, like 
not even thinking that they wanted to be a cider maker, but even like we've we've talked about an initiative to educate um, home brewers and home cider makers more and to reach out to them and and say, you know, do you do you want to be a better cider maker? And I know when I took the foundations class, I um, you know, I'd been dabbling on my own at home and I took the class and literally sat there in class as I'm learning all of these ways to to control fermentation and to make your fermentation so much better. I I thought to myself, I'm going to go home and throw away everything I've made up until now. Because I knew, I knew that what I had learned in that foundations class changed everything in my approach. You know, sometimes as a home brewer, home cider maker, you get lucky and you just nail it. And then a lot of times you make kind of average, average cider to where your friends drink it and you're like, what do you think? And they're like, oh, oh, that's good. But it's really, it's not great you know, they're, it's just free and they're your friends. And so they're drinking yeah. it, but, um, but there's a lot of, a, a lot of polishing to be done, a lot of skills to be built. And, um, and so that's one of our focus points in kind of like building curriculum is, is doing outreach to home brewers and home cider makers and kind of turning them into kind of, um, you know, an army of, of cider lovers, aficionados, educated people. And, um, and then also just, uh, you know, there's been a big, not by CENA, but by the American Cider Association, they teach a program that is um, like a certified pommelier or, or cider professional, where we're teaching people in the, in the service industry um, about cider so that they know how to pour cider. You know, like it, it used to be that you would go to a bar and, and you would have beers on tap and not a cider. And that's pretty rare on, on the West coast, especially, but I know on the East coast too, like, um, it's rare now to find a bar that doesn't have a cider on tap. If they've got four beers then they should have a cider too. And that's, that's a big, place for us to grow if, if that's not the case then it should be the case everywhere but um but then those people who have always you know been bartenders and and uh you know working at pubs to then teach them what place cider has on the menu how it pairs with food like where it sits in the you know like who likes cider why do they like cider what makes them choose that and and um i mean i personally love to go out and try ciders in a bar in a restaurant like with your food there's nothing better to me and um i felt that way for a long time and which is why i got so interested in making cider like i tried it on a fishing trip and was like what this is great i could make this this is amazing and and it just was such a nice alternative to beer for me you know it's a little you feel a little lighter, a little fresher, whatever, when you drink it. And um, and especially if you enjoy the drier ciders that, you know, it's wonderful. Wow. So it's so great meeting you guys and talking. And Bridget, thanks so much for helping to put this show together. And all those great questions, Christine, were from Bridget. So <laughs> I'm sure you knew that. And Bridget, anything else you want to say? So the education, Cena, uh, you want to wrap it up for us? Like why this is an important organization? And also, how can uh, people in the industry take classes? 
because you have virtual classes now too, don't you? We do. Yeah. So this has been echoed in, in everyone speaking today, but, uh, you know, Sino really embraces the role of education um, for professional growth and also critical thinking. Um, so making those choices that everyone has mentioned so far in the day-to-day um, profession of, of cider making, and also to be able to not only be growing the industry, but also connecting the industry. Um, most cideries you go into, you could talk to people making cider. Not only can they trace their education back to taking a course, but they remember who they took the course with um, and, and what they're doing now and, and staying connected. So um, there's definitely a, a connect connectivity aspect to um, courses and 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 the value of pursuing your personal and prof- professional education. Um, yes, and during during COVID, uh, we we switched our um, classes to offer them online. They used to be five day in person intensive classes, and we will return to offering a version of that um, in the future. But for the last year and a half, we've had the courses available online and that's been able to allow us to broaden the tent, like Christine was saying, to be able to bring in people who are kind of dabbling with making cider at home or have an interest because they have an orchard and thinking of a value add proposition for their family business or something they wanna do just at home during harvest season. And this allows them the opportunity to be able to explore that from their home. And in the last year and a half, uh, we're actually about to launch tomorrow. We're starting um, our seventh online class of Cider and Perry Production of Foundation. And including this class, we'll have um, nearly 280 students from seven countries and nine provinces 38 states uh, participating. So really an opportunity to uh, not only connect with other peers who are taking the class, but instructors from our academic partners who are leading the coursework. Um, Every week we have virtual Zoom sessions that bring in industry experts to talk about the application of the content that was reviewed that week. Um, So really broadening the accessibility um, and in in the spirit of accessibility and inclusion and diversity of the industry, also uh, we have a, a scholarship program, the Cider Production Education Fund, um, that offers tuition free uh, registrations for that online class for current aspiring cider makers of color. So so far, with the the help of the industry and Sina's uh, matching contributions, we've offered uh, ten. Um, scholarships so far and looking to continue um, all that program and uh, all that that program and then all of the classes. So keep in mind this year, if you go to ciderinstitute.org, we are about to open registration for our spring class. Uh, We have sold out of every online course we've offered so far, um, but that spring class will start up April 14th for the foundation class. Um, We'll also have online coursework for safety and sanitation and good manufacturing practices, both for employees as well as for cidery owners and operators. And we're looking forward to a return to in-person coursework as well. So if you're taking the foundation class and you're able to get the introduction to 
cider and, and the, the fundamentals of cider production and you want to take it to the next level, um, you can join an in-person class and get intensive uh, lab skills or sensory analysis, uh, digging into the science and practice of, of production. So keep an eye out for all of those, um, as well as, as Christine mentioned, uh, more classes that are offered and, and targeted both for um, the, the home cider maker who's looking to dip their toe in, in the water before um, jumping right into the intensive course, as well as some kind of mini modules focusing on specific technical topics. Um, we have gotten a lot of feedback um, through a stakeholder engagement uh, process over this past year from cider makers and past students and people who have not taken the classes just as far as what they're looking for. So uh, we're, we're focusing our priorities and content and curriculum over the next few years around uh, those opportunities and those requests from the industry. So continue to grow in that way. Wow. Bridget, that's great. So I'll tell you, I've, I got a friend, we're going to close out, believe me. I got a friend who's, um, he, he's got a, a house of little land about two hours north of New York City. And he's got about 40 really good old heirloom uh, apple trees and they only bloom every, every other year. And we're not going to get into that now. But um, so what, what should he, if he was interested in taking a course just, just to deal with the, the apples coming out of his 40 trees, would that be the foundation or is there a specific class uh, geared towards these, these home solder makers? Yes, the foundation class will go through every process, um, every step in this the stage of, of apple fermentation and post-fermentation decisions for um, an aspiring cider maker. So that's the one to, to go to. Um, it's a 12-week online class. That's great. Well, just to call out, um, I know that uh, Christine was drinking the Bauman's, the Macintosh. I don't know what Kira's drinking or Bridget, um, but I have the Artifact, the Wild Thing in can and uh farm hill farmhouse cider which is not sweet um and that's what i'm drinking so hey <laughs> thanks so much guys this has been great thanks to arm our engineer and thank you so much to ryan christine kira and bridget i'm jimmy carboni i'm the host on beer sessions radio we'll catch you next time on heritage radio network all right guys thank you beer sessions radio is powered by simple Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like. Tell your friends and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.